This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson. So, Katie, today British politicians, as along with other European politicians, are going to Munich for the security conference there. How significant is this meeting at the moment, given the geopolitical tensions on the continent? So, Cindy, I think it'll be interesting because this is taking place in the context of the past few weeks in terms of Ukraine and Russia. The fact there's still a lot of uncertainty. You still, um, yes, UK, US, others were suggesting this Wednesday could be the day of an incursion that has been and gone, and yet there are nerves over what's going to happen. I don't think anyone thinks the threat has gone. And at the Munich Security Conference, I think we're going to see, obviously, the Ukraine dominating the agenda. Um, I think... In terms of the presence there, I think there's going to be a push from the US side, represented by Kamala Harris, the vice president, to try and rally European allies to unite on this and try and create a a more united response. Because clearly we've seen across Europe um, different levels of, I say commitments one way of putting it, but the fact that Germany doesn't want to go as far, France also I think is going on a different path. And I think America will want to play that role of trying to be the person that finds a more cohesive approach. Fraser, how significant is it that Russia is not going to be at the Munich Security Council? Because presumably they're the most important person to really get around the table. Yes, but they never were going to take part in this particular one. And I think it's significant because it draws what one British official described to me as a rather unhelpful dynamic, how the Western countries are very good at talking, very good at having conferences, very good at working out how we can come up with environmentally friendly defence mechanisms and not particularly good at acting. And there's a juxtaposition between Russian action and Western talk. Uh, So I think it probably quite suits Putin not to be involved in what he basically regards as a Western snare. Now, this is something that you can see both Russia and China doing in recent years, saying, look, these so-called multilateral conferences are in fact just Western Western mechanisms designed to try to bully their adversaries and we don't want anything to do with it. So I think Russian withdrawal from this is significant. And I think the, you know, if you pick up the papers today and you hear that um, the British officials think that Russia is still going to invade Ukraine in a couple of days time, very clear, very unusual warnings. It's not often that we're actually told that the intelligence believes that Putin's going to, to make his move, because if he doesn't, then the intelligence officials end up looking a bit daft. And from what I can gather, the intelligence officials aren't comfortable with this. They don't like the stuff being shared in this way as a part of a propaganda war. So, yeah, we do have um, a, a rather strange system here with the Western talking shops, Russian actions and Westerners by and large living in fear of those Russian actions. And Katie, back in Westminster next week is the end of recess and Boris Johnson is expected on Monday to announce a scrapping of free COVID tests. Can you tell us what's going on with that? Because that's not universally popular right now, is it? Yes, so Boris Johnson has already announced he plans to get rid of all legal COVID guidelines legislation. I think there's some questions, for example, will you still be expected to wear a face mask on the tube? Probably, because right now it is not illegal, but the point as TFL can say, you know, it's it's a rule of, of passage. And therefore, I think 
you've had almost the big bang announcement, which Boris Johnson um, gave at PMQs. Um, I think was meant to, you know, rally his, his troops after a difficult few weeks. And what we're now going to get to is what does that mean in practice? So when it comes to living with COVID, I think there's a few aspects to it. One is going to be guidance. So we know that uh, it will no longer legally be the case that if you have COVID, you have to self-isolate. But I think that will come with very heavy guidance suggesting that you probably should. And therefore, I think this idea that we're not going to be linked talking about COVID or seeing COVID in our daily lives, particularly I think when you take into you know, public perceptions on this, is probably a bit wider than the mark when we start to see what living with COVID actually looks like according to the government's blueprint. And then also I think the contentious thing that's being picked up a bit and has been the subject of some cabinet disagreement in recent weeks relates to testing. So will it still be the case that I could, you could, um, just simply go online and order lateral flow tests to your home, get them in a day or so. We're one of, we're in a way quite rare. The, a lot of countries that already charge you for that. Um, so what is the government's plan going to be there? The Treasury has been very, very keen to access because it costs a lot of money. But you're already getting, you know, NHS chiefs. And also, I think some politicians behind closed doors saying that, well, actually, do we need to keep that capacity um, so as to know where we are in case the pandemic pandemic does uh, suddenly worsen and they feel they have to you know, act differently? And Fraser, that's a good point, isn't it? Because even if we might want to live with COVID, it might be a good idea to still monitor the level of COVID in society. Yes, but the question is how much you monitor it. I mean, for example, we always monitor flu every week on the Spectator's Data Hub. We we um, publish the flu levels. So you can still monitor um, COVID without going to the lengths of necessarily having a thousand ONS officials going off into the streets doing swabs, the, uh, subsidising the Imperial React 2 study. I think you can just dial up or dial down the monitoring. The important thing is, if there's any reasons to be concerned about the trajectory of the virus, then you can immediately ramp up the testing to where it was before. So I think the, the ability to move quickly will be key here. When you look at the um, like Sweden and Denmark, I mean, they, they've stopped giving away lateral flows. They now say that Omicron is such a mild disease that if it had come along for the first time around, there's no way you'd be putting all of this taxpayers' money into the testing and the monitoring apparatus. I think Britain has led the world in monitoring our genomic sequencing, our, um, the ONS has, has been a gold standard survey. As an avid consumer of the, um, of the data produced by these surveys, I think it's been great. But you do have to wonder if this is the best use of taxpayers' money, especially given so many other pressures on the NHS right now. Katie, the talk of the town today, or certainly of London, is the fact that the city is under a red weather warning because of Storm Eunice. Tell us about your first-hand experience, because you're our intrepid reporter on the ground right now. Yep, so as the only member of this podcast who is in the office, you're seeing, obviously, a big weather warning across the UK, but particularly in London. So, for example, I think around Parliament, they're, pu- they're putting up special protections around the scaffolding. What does this mean? I mean, we clearly don't know how serious it's going to be yet, but storms can be quite bad news for Prime Ministers. If you have adverse weather, then we've seen in the past how you're under pressure to um, you know, put in more protection on it. I mean, so far, as I don't attempt fate, but I found my walk from Parliament to our current office while our other officers done at the Centre for Social Justice to be a little bit windy but but not too bad at all but Sydney I don't know what the perspective is where you are all Fraser um, down in Somerset. 
Well, listeners might be able to hear the wind outside my window right now, but Fraser, you are a Scotsman. You were telling us before we started recording that this is just summer. See that I was all set to come into the office today, but um, we were having a drink after work last night. It would have been just after you left, Katie, about about quarter past ten. And um, I was saying to my colleagues how I was going to go to Somerset to see my parents for the weekend. And their faces blanched, saying, like, are you crazy? Do you, haven't you heard about this storm? The trains are going to be cancelled. You're going to get blown away. So I decided to get the Cider Express, the kind of 11.30pm train from Paddington to Bath. Um, the weather was fine. I think it ended up London has got the worst of the storm. Now, it made me wonder whether in the post-COVID era, the Met Office will be more likely to issue these stay-at-home warnings to storms where they might not have done a while ago? Are we becoming more risk averse as a society? Over the generations, certainly, this precautionary principle has been applied ever more liberally by governments. The steps to which we're not likely to take now to avoid something which may or may not come to pass. Now, that said, as far as we can work out, Storm Eunice is going to be, the Met Office say, the worst storm in 30 years. The worst storm since, the, I think, there was a 1990 Burns Day storm where about 50 people were killed. So if it's going to be anything like as bad as that, then of course it makes sense to hunker down. It does raise more general issues about risk aversion. For example, if our new monitoring system picks up a pathogen which is, say, 20% likely to become as serious as Omicron, would you then get warnings issued? Would we then be given more stay-at-home advice? That's going to be one of the dilemmas politicians are going to have to deal with over the next few years. Uh, Just where do you draw this line? Now, if we are going to get storms of 70 miles an hour in London, that's what I'm hearing, Katie, so you better be careful if you're going to go home. But of course it makes sense that delivery drivers aren't going to be biking around the capital because they might get blown over. So I guess we're going to have to come to terms with a new form of modelling, a new form of risk assessment, and a new normal when it comes to what steps you take to stay safe for things which may or may not come to pass. Katie and Fraser, thanks very much. And I feel like I should also say that I'm home not because of the wind, but because of this disgusting cold that I've got. But anyway, thanks very much for joining and do join us again tomorrow.